ladies and gentlemen, it is time for Straight Side to Hold and Bowside to get in. Broken Oars, episode nine. Actually, our 10th episode, but we're calling it episode nine. And it's another interview. It's an interview with an incredibly interesting person. But there's something a little bit odd about this interview. Aaron, do you want to tell us what that is? Yes, there's several things odd about this interview, Lewin. And the first is that you've just introduced this as though it's an outing and we are pushing off from the landing stage. You are now thematically tying together our closing point of bowside holding stroke sides heads under. I think that is a beautiful and wondrous and poetic thing to do. Um, I'm, I have. I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trying to get a theme going. So it's like it's it's more, more of the catchphrases. It's it's like right. Let's start the episode with like bowside holding stroke side in, and then you know at some point we're going to mention the fact that we are not leaving any James Franklin's behind. <laughs> Well, yes, but the thing is about our catchphrases, as as our listeners probably don't know, is that um, Steve Redgrave is now suing us for constantly referring to Sydney as Redgrave's last stand. James Cracknell is suing us for saying that there are no James Cracknells harmed in the making of these episodes and no James Cracknells left behind. And Matthew Pinson is suing us because we've pointed out that um, God is one of his direct descendants rather than the other way around. Matthew Pinson is suing us because I suggested that James Cracknell should call his pug Pinson. And James Cracknell replied, I would, but he's not fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that, that's a slightly die-happy moment that James Cracknell liked one of my jokes. Um, yes. When you think about it, when you think about it, if James Cracknell trains Pinson the pug well, this will be the first time that a Pinson has ever followed a Cracknell's instruction. James Cracknell can pass around Pinson all the time. He can say, Pinson, fetch! And Pinson will go and fetch. There is that. The other thing is also that um, if James Cracknell trains his dog and calls it Pinson and trains it well, it'll be the first time that a Cracknell and a Pinson have ever worked in tandem in a pair together. Yeah, just call the lawyers now. We're going down. It's, it's not even going to be lawfare. It'll just be a massacre. Lewin is alluding to the fact that when he interviewed uh, Rory Copus, and it is a wonderful interview, yours truly was absent. And um, I had some issues with my kidneys uh, on the day that we were supposed to be interviewing Rory. I, I'm a man who lacks kidneys, is, is, is Lewin's joke. In the Regency period in England, that would mean a a very, very different thing. He would be casting aspersions on my courage and I would be forced to challenge him to a duel, which would be very unfortunate because I really like his wife and I think his children are adorable and we'd we'd end up shooting each other with dueling pistols. About 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with uh, stage four kidney disease. Now, at the time, I was rowing in Agecroft's Henley boat. I was finishing a PhD or researching a PhD. I was lecturing full-time at the universities in Manchester and I was leading a very active and vivid social life around Manchester and my kidneys did not seem to stop me doing any of this and all of a sudden this summer I've just I've been hit by all of the things that probably should have been happening over a period of time so I've, I've had broken feet and sprained ankles and cellulitis in the feet and my kidneys decided to stop working for a little bit not not badly stop working but enough to make me quite poorly and have to go to hospital one of the points that Lewin made before we started recording was that, have you ever considered, Aaron, that the reason the interview was so good was because you weren't in it, which I thought was just savage, absolutely savage. Did I say that out loud? I'm <laughs> sure I didn't say it. I'm sure I just thought that. It's just like, 
I've been in a boat with you for a long time. I can read oh, what you're thinking through. I can read what you're thinking through the set of your shoulders. You definitely thought it. Your shoulders, your shoulders told me so. <laughs> Enough. Um, in in my own defence, I did. I thought no such thing. I I it was very much a chat between two profoundly southern individuals, and I I think Aaron would have been that that spice that really brought it out together. But it, it was it was a it was a great inter- interview with Rory Copus, who is a cox a coach. Um, he is also, and this is important. Um, he is an occasional rower as well. He knows how to row. He doesn't just sit in the boat. And he, I mean, I, I think we should let him tell his story, but it's a very good story. He is a graduate of Abingdon um, and of Oxford Brooks, and he has done really rather well steering boats at both. And uh, there, he's also, I would say, probably one of the three most famous coxes in this country. Thanks very much to his presence on YouTube. And uh, we will leave the necessary links in the description uh, of this episode. But let us let Rory explain himself in his own words. Please enjoy. Okay. Um, So welcome back to another one of the Broken Oars podcast rowing. Uh, interviews this time with the um, with the conqueror of Belmont Hill, Rory Copus, coach at Abingdon School, previously of Abingdon School and Oxford Brooks University. One thing I should just point out at the moment: it's only going to be me doing this interview because my partner in pod, Aaron Jackson, Doctor Aaron Jackson, sorry, is a little bit poorly at the moment, so he is uh, he's going to be taking a back seat for this one and um, thankfully doing all our editing. So I sound vaguely human. So Rory, welcome to the, welcome to the podcast. Thank yeah, good to be here. Much. Tell us just a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how long you've been doing this rowing thing and, and your sort of history and locations in it. Well, so I, I picked up rowing, man, I think back in 2004, um, I'd been very much into cross country and, and hockey at school. And my dad said to me, Oh, there's like, it, it's the last sort of taste today of, of doing rowing. Would you want to go along? And I wasn't that into it at the time because I was doing county hockey. And I thought that was sort of the direction I was going to go with my sport. And I felt bad. I felt bad. Cause like, Oh, this is the last day. I, my dad would be disappointed if I didn't at least go along and try. And this was at the time where they just, uh, I think it was in November or December and they bring people along and would sit down on some ergos in the rowing room and just teach them roughly the sequencing and just be like, just go and pull hard, whatever. And the short people, they'd be like, oh, just, just yell some encouragement at them. And I really enjoyed that. And I, 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 I got a kick out of it. And I was like, ah, I could see myself doing this as a, as a sport. Um, so I picked it up that year. And I think I'm going on, my maths is right, 16 years, almost 17 years involved in the sport. So you, you got in kind of that sort of 2000 to 2004 Olympiad mm. after Sydney. Because to my shame, I, I have to admit that I didn't... I'm worried now, sort of looking back on it, I never watched Sydney live. You know, I, I can almost like replay all the phases of the, of the race in my head, but I didn't actually watch Redgrave's 
fifth gold medal live and and then and then it was after that down the road that I became a rower which I it's it's a bit of a strange one but sort of the first one really screaming at the tv live was uh was in Sydney when you say you were doing this was this at school or at a club uh yeah so I sort of picked it up at school well I was introduced to it at school um Mm -hmm. at Abingdon and I so I, I, I did sort of all the, you know, the, the PE sessions at school um, as rowing. But then I also joined Marla Rowing Club to do okay. some stuff at the weekends because at the time they were only offering, you know, Monday to Friday rowing for 14, 15 year olds at school. So I was, you know, part of the club scene at the weekends and I was, um, you know, coxing, cox quads at sort of J14, J15 level. And, you know, I worked my way up through the senior squad so i started coxing uh the second date for a bit at minor own club and then ended up coxing the first date which were my first two experiences at henley actually was representing minor own club so we would think i was coxing the second date which was a, a sort of seniors and juniors combo boat and mm-hmm. i think we were seven seconds off qualifying which was quite fun okay. for the tennis cup and then the next year i coxed the the first date and we got pre-qualified made it to the friday Nice. Um, and got knocked out by Leander, which was when they were still doing their sort of over 19s Thames Cup club um, yeah. uh, project. But yeah, no, there was a mixture of, of, of school and, and club stuff, is what sort of started me off, I guess. I mean, I, I probably don't know enough about Abingdon, but uh, it, it is part boarding. So were you sort of like skipping out and. You, you know, so it's so like knocking off Saturday morning lessons to go and head down uh, to Marlow or... No, 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 no. It's, it, it, it is part boarding. I think about a third of the boys do board there at the moment. But I was, okay. um, I was a day boy and I was okay, commuting I'm... from the Marlow area um, to school every day. So okay. that was like my local club for when I wasn't at school, obviously. From Abingdon onto Oxbrooks. Presumably that, that's actually a little bit before Oxbrooks became this like mighty all-conquering juggernaut that is mm. feared by anything other than the top tier of international crews. <laughs> so w- yeah. w- were you kind of like part of that kind of, that, that, that kind of like wave upwards? Um, yeah, I, 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 I reckon, honestly, so I was involved in the sort of the two, three years that really spearheaded and kicked everything off um because yeah oxford brooks have been uh, a really good university program um it won uh, the temple in 2006 they won the the prince albert uh cox fours event in 2009 and then uh it was sort of like a, a period of, of newcastle's dominance at that time sort of like yeah. 2010 11 12 and um in 2012, so I arrived uh, in September of 2010, leading into the, the 2011 season. Yeah. And the 2012 year, we had quite a good year because we had um, a lot of guys who had come from sort of, uh, you know, not massive rowing backgrounds, but really sort of improved and, and really sort of came on a lot with their rowing when they were at Brooks. Um, and we did a lot with quite a small group of people in, in 2012. And we ended up um, sort of racing quite competitively at Met and Marlow. And we lost 2012, we lost to University of Virginia. 
okay, uh, on so... Thursday, which was quite interesting. But then quite a lot of those. So 2012, yeah, we, 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 we did a lot with quite a small squad. And that sort of um, drew the attention of a few juniors who were coming through the, um, the Coop and Junior World system. So we find ourselves in 2013 with a much bigger squad. A lot of people who already have, you know, prior rowing experience, because at the time, Brooks was sort of comprising its squad, sort of half of experienced people or people who had rowing backgrounds by the time they got to university and half through the novice program. So a lot of people who learned to row uh, legitimately at, at university level. And when we get to 2013, we find ourselves with almost three eighths worth of people who have rowing experience before coming to university. And... We, we come second at Bucks, we then go to Henley, and we essentially lost the final on the Friday. We lost to the eventual winners, Lacher from the Netherlands, by half a length, uh, and that was the closest that, that any other university got to them. So I like to say that we were the second fastest crew in the event that yeah. year. And what really kicked things off was the fact that all eight of those guys from 2013 stayed on still had at least a year of their degree left we then get more people coming into the program having seen what's gone on the year before and want to be a part of it um one of which was uh my own brother jamie he joined brooks at the beginning um of the 2014 season and a couple other boys who'd come out of of junior level and essentially we took what was a pretty strong eight in 2013 and made it stronger And that was, I think, very decisive in terms of, um, you know, turning the momentum from from Newcastle's three-year really strong reign at university level in the UK to this new sort of tidal wave that we're still riding of Oxford Brooks being the dominating force at university level. Um, We won bucks by a length. We set at that time the fastest um, university 2K of 540, was it? It was either 540, <laughs> it was 539. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. And uh, then we went to Henley and, and we won Henley, which was um, amazing. And then 2015, they almost did the same thing. Uh, they had a really successful university run um, through Bucks and Met and Amalo. And then they just got um overturned by Nereus on the Friday. But then those guys came back the year later and did the 2016 win. And then they did the 2017 ladies win while we had a new Temple bunch winning the Temple and then 2018 ladies again and Temple. And it's just it's it's been like that ever since. And you know, success breeds success. And uh more and more and more people want to be involved in that program when they leave school. And that is what's continuing to draw in top end talent and keeps the squad as competitive as it's ever been year on year. I mean, it, it seems as though we, you know, in, in, in the way I sh- had this in mind going through, it, it seems we've kind of jumped forward straight into Brooks. So let's just keep sort of going about that. I mean, if you're one of these 17, 18 year olds doing your A-levels, you, it, you have that kind of like, background in the sport you've been rowing you know i I don't know maybe you're a a 10 or a a 14 term rower um at your school 
what what should be going through your head if you're thinking about I'm going to apply to Oxbrooks with the intention of being a rower there? What, what calculations should you be making? Um, so, uh, especially in the last like three years, obviously, you know, I'm not, when I was a, a student there for, for four years and then I became a coach for two years, so I'm, I'm not involved in their, in their program anymore. Mm-hmm. But from what I can see from their website, they have now um, uh, an erg cutoff because obviously, they, you know, they're dealing with up to um, 100 men and women respectively in terms of the squads. Yeah. Um, uh, like they're dealing with a lot of athletes and obviously there is only so much Oh, so, you know, so many ergos that they can sit people on and so yep. many seats that they can sit in a boat. Um, so they have to find a way to sort of draw a line with the, the wealth of people who are applying every year. And they have a, a recruitment form on their website, which, you know, you go and you fill in your details and they say specifically, if you're a man, you need to have at least um, this 2K score to apply. And if you're a woman, you need this score to apply just because they have to find a way to draw the line somewhere. Um, because it is ridiculously competitive and not just in terms of getting into Brooks, but then once you're in Brooks, the, the internal competition and everyone fighting for a seat in a really positive way, um, then pushes on everybody when you get onto the water and you've got like, you know, the, the Brooks fifth eight trying to beat the fourth eight in training and things like that. So it's, um, it's in terms of like juniors wanting to apply for Brooks, I would say, if you really want to take your own seriously and you really want to look for that absolute next step in terms of taking your own further and pushing your, your, your abilities on, then Brooks is a very good place to do that. I wouldn't say the only place in the country because um, there are you know, other fantastic university rowing programs, but Brooks in particular, because of the way that they're currently feeding people through student temple bucks squads into their like ladies squad that sort of squad that sits just outside of the senior team, then the group of like um, performance pathway athletes who are trying to break into the senior squad. And now you've got, you know, guys like Rory Gibbs and Morgan Boulding um, currently in the squad. And then you've got other people sitting on the, uh, the outskirts, you know, trying to break their way in. It is a very, very good program um, for that reason. So yeah, if, if, if you want to apply to Brooks, obviously, you've got to be quite grounded in terms of how good an athlete you know you are right now, how good an athlete you think you could be in the future. Could you be competitive and, you know, be very prepared for hard training and, you know, asking a lot of yourself in terms of your physicality and your mentality, uh, mentality and the quality that you're rowing with every day. That kind of level that Brooks is operating at, I was never a university rower and and to be honest, the days when I was actually capable of doing that training are actually quite a long way behind me. But I've certainly seen uh, a few people posting what they're doing at at Brooks on Facebook. I'm a member of an indoor and online indoor rowing club and there's another guy there from Brooks and he was knocking out you know, in a fairly relaxed fashion, two 16Ks a day and wait. That, that's what he was posting. He was posting up his scores. And these 16Ks were going out at sort of 149. 
is that just the level you have to be at? Is that a bit much for the overwhelming majority of students who want to row? Is, is, is there another side to Brooks where it's kind of, you can row and you can row well, but you don't have to be on the, the full international training? Um, I don't think so. Um, certainly when I was an athlete there and as a coach, like the, the program is the program. Um, okay. It hasn't really changed uh, a huge amount in terms of like the underlying base stuff that they do. So um, I think the, the performance pathway guys who are sort of no longer students and have won the ladies and they're looking for that next step thing, they, they do something slightly different because obviously they're trying to make align their training load more with what the, the senior squad guys are doing. Uh, and also the fact that, you know, they're not students, so they're not having to operate by the student timetable so they can essentially train right, with you know, you. in and around their work. Um, but I guess that's just, that is the standard that you need to operate at now in terms of university rowing and especially, you know, the top end guys who are wanting to win the ladies or, you know, go to the Windermere cup and race against university of Washington and things yeah. like that. That is the standard. And you know, that's certainly what programs like that in the States, like the Yales and the Washington's and the cows, that's what they're doing too. And that is just, that is the standard now. That, and it's I mean, pretty it, obscene when you think of it that way. It's like, well, it, it, the amount, yeah. I mean, th this was, I, I don't know if, if you know him from Twitter, um, I mean, it's a bit of a stalwart, but Tristan May Gothling, we, we had a chat with him like this. It, it was an interview. And, he, and he, his, his focus is massively on athlete welfare. There is that kind of balance between athlete welfare and performance. And one of the things that I, I should, we should probably have another chat with him, but I wanted to bring up was this idea that you don't set the price. That, that there's the price you have to pay to compete and be successful. And you don't have any control over it. You just, it, it, essentially your opposition and the event is setting the training for you because mm. that's what you have to do if, you, if you're going to be successful. The idea you were saying there that I'm only partly aware of is that there are two sides to Brooks. There is the, there's the university side and there's the open club side. Is that, is that right? Uh, yeah, so this would... I, th I don't know if it's always been like this, but it was certainly like this when I was there. So, you know, you have the athletes who um, come under the banner of, of the student side of things, Oxford Brooks University Boat Club. Um, and there are the athletes who uh, have either just graduated or are still using Brooks as their training base or athletes that are like, okay, I want to train at Brooks as opposed to training at Leander or training at Molsey and things like that. Um, and they use Brooks as, as their training center. So when you have events like uh, Brit Champs in October or Head of the River and things like that, anyone and everyone who wants to compete for Brooks comes under the banner of Oxford Brooks University Boat Club. But obviously when they're racing in like Brooks second eight is like an academic eight because they're entirely full of students that are going for the academic pennant then it has to be obviously students. And then when it comes to, you know, April, May time, they start splitting off into the respective squads of, okay, the students are going for, I don't know, three temple boats and two PA fours. And yep. the other half of the squad is going for the ladies or a visitors four or yeah. But there is a, a wealth of, um, of people who are either students or 
um, non-students anymore, but they right, use okay. Brooks as a training base. Because, yeah, historically, obviously, Brooks used to be just a university, but when you graduated from university, you went and represented your Leanders or your Molseys. Um, but it's become more of a thing in the past of the athletes deciding that they still want to represent Brooks on the big stage at national trials and so on, which is fantastic for obviously the university's exposure, but also shows the, um, uh, what's the word? I guess commitment to yeah, I mean, continuing and wanting to represent the club. And um, you I know, mean, it's the it, same it, for it genuinely impressive. Yeah. Cause you got like, you know, Matt Tarrant, uh, in the heavies, mm-hmm. you got Rory Gibbs, you got Morgan Bolding, you've got, um, Pete Chambers, while he was still rowing internationally, he was representing Brooks. Um, Joel Castles, my brother Jamie. Um, yep. And then you've got this new bunch coming through of like uh, the Mike Glovers, the Sam Nuns, the uh, Harry Brightmores, who are all representing Brooks as their club as well. There's clearly this kind of like, there's formula, there's a formula there that obviously seems to work. There's also kind of like, a talent pipeline from the J18 coming through, they've got somewhere to go. How long can Brooks just keep doing this for? You, you, you talked about Newcastle's three years of dominance and now you're kind of like, and then that came to an end, but this has been what, six years now mm-hmm. that, that, you know, Brooks has really been on top. And from what you're saying, it, there doesn't seem to be a point at which the cycle stops turning. Yeah, I, I don't know. Obviously, it was it was fantastic to be a part of it when it was all starting and kicking off. And, you know, um, well, I mean, well, when I won Henley in 2014, that was something I've been, you know, building my whole rowing career towards. Because mm-hmm. um, I lost the final in my last year at school in 2009, which is obviously the whole, the Belmont yep. Hill sort of uh, <laughs> campaign. We, we, we'll um, have a chat about that. That's a great video. Yeah. Um, but 2014 was amazing. And then to sort of like take a step back because I knew that I couldn't, obviously the rules that, you know, if, if you win the temple, you can't then try and enter the PA. That's it. Cause you can win the PA yeah. and you can then compete at the temple, but you can't go anywhere further than that as opposed to then shifting to the intermediate events like the visitors or the ladies yeah. and so on. Um, so as a Cox, I was just like, okay, 2014, I've won it. I'm going to take a step back new group of athletes coming through trying to win the temple. So I was like coxing the cox tour behind there. And to, to see how that all started taking off, like new group coming in and almost winning Henley again straight away. Yeah. And then basically those same, I think it was same seven or same six guys came back the next year and then won it. And then it's like, you know, it's just become yeah. a, um, almost a, a certainty every year. I think the only thing that's bucked the trend recently is, uh, was it 2019, I think, when they lost to Washington in the final? No, 2018, sorry, 2018. Because they won it in 2019 with most of the same guys again, and then we haven't had a 2020 regatta. Um, But, uh, yeah, I couldn't tell you. I mean, as I said, you know, success breeds success. And after just such a, you know, a run that they're on and they're just continuing to to do the same stuff and push the boundaries. And I, I don't see that stopping anytime soon, if I'm very honest, but yeah, to see, you know, what they've done since 2014 and almost had a, you know, a flawless run in terms of Henley success with their temple eights and their ladies eights that they've entered. Yeah. Um, 
it's just going to keep attracting more and more people, which then obviously makes the squad better and better and deeper and deeper. And the internal competition is that much closer. You know, it's just going to keep attracting people who want to be a part of that program. And I don't see it stopping anytime soon. My kind of feeling, and I don't know how accurate this is, because again, I'm looking at this from the outside, is that Brooks is very much a feeder pool for GB now. Is this, is that a kind of like, how many people make that leap? Is is it just like, look, if you're in the first eight, you're only going one way, or, or do people actually kind of say, you know what, this, this university rowing, this has been great, but I don't really want to make a career out of it. How, how leaky is the pipeline between? Well, I don't, it's interesting because, like, you know, you have people who, well, you've got some athletes who, you know, were schoolboys and wanted to go to Brooks because they couldn't or weren't able to, you know, compete at the highest level. Um, at Henley when they were a junior or they didn't have a ch- they weren't able to win Henley as a junior so they want to try and do it at university and you have some athletes who like you know in either their first or their second year at Brooks they win Henley and they're like okay that's it that's good for me um, and that you know that might be the pinnacle of of, um, of someone's you know sporting career and that's as far as they want to take it you know, if you look at currently, I, I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, um, but, you know, they have that performance pathway group that trains um, with the eye of getting into the senior squad. I want to say there's like 10, 15 of them possibly. Okay. Um, and if you're looking at how the, the senior squad is, is at the moment currently, obviously you've got, uh, you've got Rory Gibbs, you've got Morgan Bolding, you've got Matt Tarrant, you've got my brother. Um, they're all still... Um, in the squad and competing it's i i think in terms of people who really say yes i want to make that leap and, and go for the national team there is a a very high push through from brooks in that regard because you know back in the day it used to be when you finished being a junior or when you finished uh, at university you go to a leandro or a Malsey and and that's that and you know you used to see at trials just it being leandro and Malsey represented athletes and now you've got people you know, retaining their University of London banners and the Newcastle yeah. banners. And um, it's a lot more diverse in terms of the, the representative clubs. I, I, I would say the, the pipeline's pretty strong in that regard. To, to a certain extent, that, that's that idea of just like how happy people are at Brooks. If they're, they're like, oh, this is good. I'll do some more of this. I mean, that, that, that's probably like one of the best indications that you have that you've got a Carter pretty happy at athletes yeah i mean one of the things i absolutely loved about my time at oxford brooks was the fact that you have this fantastic stretch of river to train on um you have basically a, a, a 2k segment that we can do time pieces on you can get i mean if you're really going top to tail at the river you can probably get i think it's 12k end to end or 10k end to end um like very easily you can go from the boathouse down to the bottom lock and back and have done the best part of 16k and it doesn't feel like you're doing four laps of a 2k lake <laughs> um you know you can easily cover the mileage and you've got beautiful countryside around you and as a cox it's really interesting because of all the bends in the rivers and it requires you know a bit of thought and skill to go into how you're steering the boats through so from uh yeah from a cox's perspective it's it's so much nicer to be able to to do that than just go up and down a lake um and then you have obviously two fantastic boathouses filled with 
a ridiculous amount of Empaka <laughs> boats. Um, and Carbon fiber have, thing. Yeah. And then you have, um, you know, they've got phenomenal facilities back at the, the university in terms of their, um, uh, their ergrim and the weights uh, gym that they have and also a separate S&C facility um, in the sports performance department. So from, yeah, for an athlete, there is almost every single conceivable thing you, you might want right. um, in terms of, you know, your experience as an athlete and you know, competing at a high performance center, essentially. Fair enough. So, I mean, one thing you mentioned there was like almost the, the job and the necessity for coxing. That's kind of what you as like a rowing athlete are famous for is, is coxing and like these incredible sort of videos that you've got going out. Tell us a bit more about, I mean, remember that you're talking to someone who's, whose best rowing has actually happened in small boats. So the, the rowing I've enjoyed the most and sort of like remember the most is in pairs, doubles and singles. Tell me what, what it is about coxing, why it matters, why it matters to the sport and what great coxes bring to the boat. So this is something that I've talked to many people about many different times. You, you can almost, well, back when I started, Coxes were sort of the second citizens of the sport, the second class okay. citizens, because, you know, there's that, that old adage of if the boat wins, it's because the rowers did it. If the boat loses, it's because something the Cox did. Oh, well, um, yeah, okay. It was like a lose-lose situation. The way I see it is this is very much like a jockey, you know, yeah. you're, you're controlling the horse, you're controlling the thing that's actually making the boat go. But at the yeah. same time, you have a lot of control over that and you can influence them positively or negatively in a really big way like a cox the right cox is like a key to an engine you know you've got a v8 and you need the right key to the right engine yeah and the best coxes i've found are ones that speak to you subconsciously because obviously when you're in the middle of a race you know you've got eight athletes maybe about 750 meters in they're sort of really pushing the rev limit yeah, and they're on that red line to the point where, like, you know, the the blinkers come in a little bit, and they're just solely focused on what they're doing, or they're not totally aware of it. They're just going through that that routine, yeah, that sort of muscle memory that's bedded in. And you know, when the when their heads, when their eyes are rolling back in their heads, you're the one pulling them back from the brink and still keeping them in control, uh, and still getting them operating at 100 percent or 101 percent efficiency, and you can only do that if you still have just that little line to them to be able to pull them back from the brink. And that's where this art of like subconscious coxing comes in, in terms of how you say something is almost always more important than what you say. And it's how you get people like, you know, just hung on your every word and listening and like, just essentially like almost acting before you ask them to, because they're just totally immersed in what you're saying. And, you know, you can have someone who can, call a race and okay, yeah, that was great. You know, didn't make any mistakes. You know, you, you went through each of the markers and did the race plan, but did it really get a crew to overperform and like just outperform their expectations? And that's where the whole thing of like the whole is greater than the sum of the parts comes in. Can you really make that unit significantly better than just the individuals? And that's what I find is really 
really cool about when you get it right and when you've built up this rapport with the athletes and you know what makes each of them tick and how you can sort of like push that button. So it's like, um, you know, you're playing Mario Kart and you get the golden mushroom and you just keep pressing the button. <laughs> that's like, that's what you're trying to do in coxing the whole time. Yeah. You're just trying to keep the boat just up at that top speed as much as possible. And, and get, get a different response each time you get the call, but making sure you're getting that response. Mm, yeah. yeah. And it's, okay. it's hugely satisfying when you get it right and you see this sort of boat take off and like the timing of everyone reacting to a call at the same time. And it's like, Oh, it's it's really cool when you when it works and and i think that's what keeps coxes in the sport because it's that sensation of going ridiculously fast and also you know whether it's a little bit of a power trip or not depends on the individual but like just having that ability to control these eight really powerful athletes in front of you um and have them hanging on your every word and uh you know snap your fingers tell them to jump and they say how high and it's it's really cool Okay, obviously, I've, I've, I've kind of looked at, like, Cox's seats with, like, absolute fears. Like, I just, I just can't fit in there. That's, like, r- ridiculous. How can anybody be asked to sit in that seat for an hour? Um, but, yeah, I mean, w- when you talk about it like that, it seems like a huge amount of fun. Um, I mean, al- almost, I think I've asked this the wrong way around. I, we've just talked about, like, the highest level of, of, of Coxing there. I mean, it, it's just, like, this is... This is the most important thing you do on race day. Take these eight guys and take them, as you said, to 101% of what they were expecting to do. But at the other end, what, what do you see as the basic business and the day-to-day responsibilities of being a Cox? Um. Well, so this is something I tell like the, you know, the, the junior coxes that I work with at the absolute base level, um, is the three S's. So steering or safety, steering and speech in that order. Like first and foremost, obviously the, the boat and the athletes and the equipment and other river users, everything has to be safely looked after. Um, then you focus on the steering and getting the steering right. And once you've got those two things, bedded in then you start thinking about what you're saying so that's like the absolute you know base level of importance but you know in terms of like the day-to-day you know once you're in a season and you're going and like you're, you're working with the athletes like you're a coach in the boat you can see what's going on um you know i know from having you know seen it from both sides as a cox and as a coach you 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 don't see certain things unless you're actually sat in the seat and similarly unless you sat out of the seat and it's very important for you to be able to help the athletes address that from what you can see. So you're, you're constantly trying to improve each athlete's individual stroke to stroke to stroke to stroke so that they're both making progress and also making your boat better. Um, and you're you know, facilitating the smooth running of the session and the smooth execution of you know, the, the training and what that session entails. You're trying to get the most out of the athletes, but you're also trying to tick the box on what we need to do today. And also at the same time, improve yourself. Um, It's, it's, it's very much underrated in terms of like, you know, how a Cox can just make a session happen. A really good Cox can just make a session happen without the athletes needing to worry about, 
are we in the wrong place on the river? Are we definitely going to get the 12K in that we need to? Are we going to get these bursts in before we get to the start line of the piece? Blah, blah, blah. Um, it, 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 the value behind a really good cox is just allowing the athletes to relax and do the training. And all of that, you know, potential stress and responsibility sits with the cox and the athletes can trust that the cox is, you know, just going to get everything done. Yeah, it's, there is a, a lot to think about all at the same time. And I, I think it's one of the things that sometimes the athletes don't necessarily recognize is how much is going on and being monitored and how many plates are constantly spinning um, when it's like, oh, yeah, I could do your job. It's easy. It's like, okay, sit down, have a crack, make this session happen, go on. And then, you know, uh, this has happened to me a couple of times in my career, actually, where I've, I've turned the tables on, on an athlete and said, oh, all right, cr crack on. Let's see what you can do. And, uh, you know, they're flabbergasted by how much there is to actually do and how much there is to manage and also to manage well and how easy it is to think you've got something under control and for then it to completely turn on you and, and um, be a complete mess. Yeah. So, so is, is that something that you think that should be encouraged more is, is switching people around, getting, getting the cocks into the boat and getting possibly the athletes, even if they're sort of like hanging with their, you know, balancing their feet on strokes riggers into the Cox's seat. So there's a little bit more empathy and realization of what has to happen. I think it couldn't hurt. I wouldn't say like obviously making it a, um, a big thing of it, a regular thing of it, but for a certain athlete or, you know, whether it's like, um, uh, you know, as a coach, if you're sort of managing the individuals in a squad and, and two of them aren't getting along and one of it being a Cox and rower and just to sort of get, each of them to understand each other's position a bit more and have a little bit more, you know, empathy for, for what they do and what they bring. Um, it, it, it couldn't hurt, but yeah, in terms of just sort of like essentially taking a whole session or even a part of the session to sort of make a point <laughs> does, um, uh, does take some time. How, how do you, how do you, how do you start? How do you take someone who's, who you're either suggesting to or, has come along and said, you know, I'd like to try this, this, this boat piloting business. How, how do you take them and turn them into a cox? I mean, it, it is, I'm, I'm aware that there's no kind of training manual for coxes as far as I know. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. so what, what are the stages you take them through? Um, well, yeah, so there, there still isn't at the moment. And that's kind of what I'm, I'm trying to change certainly within without having in school. Like um, when, when I was at school, obviously there was a coach for the athletes. There isn't really a coach for the coxes. You kind of just have to pick these things up as you go. Um, and this was at the time before, you know, there was a lot of content on YouTube and stuff like that. So I was um, looking for, you know, audio clips on websites and things of coxes and listening to Ace and other cox coxing yeah. oxford in the boat race and stuff like this and um and thinking oh i like the way he makes that call why has he made that call oh how can i sort of fit that into my own vocabulary um and just try things out and just you know developed a style and a way that i liked to to cox and that i liked how it sounded and actually you know it wasn't just fluff it was you know effective speech and it, everything that i said had a purpose there was no filler 
Um, and, you know, the Coxes sort of in the years below me, sort of they'd pick up what I was doing and they'd then take it and make it their own version when they were in the upper sixth at school. And, and there was a really good um, sort of continuation of, of coxing at Abington. But from the J14 level, what I try and do is, you know, I, I, obviously you start with kids who are relatively small, but they, you know, I've had quite a few kids grow out of coxing because, you know, while they might be small at 13, five, yeah. two, five, four at 13, 14, they might end up being six foot five by the time they're 18. There's a guy like that, actually, um, Tim Clark, uh, who was uh, a schoolboy with me. He raced um, in the first day with me in 2009. Uh, he raced at Newcastle University, and then he was on the, the national team for a number of years. Um, he was a cox when he was uh, 15 years old because he was five seven and he could fit into the seat. So he coxed when he was a J15 and then he started growing and J16. Uh, he was the bow man of the, the, the J16 B's. Yeah. And then he was in the second eight, in his lower six. And then he was in the first eight in his upper six. And then he went to Newcastle and went to, you know, under 23s and world university championships. So well, <laughs> how small someone necessarily is when they're 14 might not be when they're 18, but yeah. it's good to find kids who've like already very, you know, sure of themselves. Like, they got no problem speaking out. They've got no problem, I guess, being a bit loud, really. That's always yeah, a, good, okay. a good thing to, to have for uh, a junior cox. And then it's essentially just teaching the basics. And you say, okay, we say this because X. We say this because Y. This is how you tell them to get the boat out. Uh, and if necessary, you do it yourself. And they do it sort of in a parrot fashion. They listen and they hear and they repeat themselves. And... For, there was this cox that I started in the lower sixth year. He wanted to, to take it up and he'd obviously never done anything like this before. So mm -hmm. I said, okay, this is how you steer. Focus on that and just try and absorb what I'm saying to the athletes each session to the point where he was then like, okay, I think I can start running this now. Gave him the reins and he was basically telling the athletes what to do. And, uh, you know, there were a couple like hiccups at the beginning because you might get a call wrong or not say it right. But then he quickly learned, that's not how you do it. This is how you do it. And then his, his coxing really sort of took off from there. So it's, 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 it's very much the same as, as, as coaching a rower, but surprisingly, a lot of people don't do it. Fair enough. Um, I mean, and, I mean, sort of looking at that kind of like school thing, you know, obviously Abingdon is regarded as like one of the, the big rowing schools. I mean, are, are you trying to, do you adapt every year to, the kids that you're teaching or, or do you have like an overarching philosophy of where Abingdon rowing is going and what it is? Yeah, I, yeah we do have a, a, a philosophy in that sense in terms of like the, the reputation of the boat club really sort of came along in sort of that 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 year where, um, you know, we had a couple losses in either the semis or the finals uh, then they had the three years that they won back to back to back, which was really, really cool for the school. And, you know, that really sort of raised the profile of, uh, of rowing as a sport within the school and obviously drew a lot um, of interest from the younger years and the students. And, yeah, schoolboy rowing right now is crazy competitive, crazy yeah. competitive. There was, um, you know, back when I was at school, I think there's been – two 
two like standout crews that have really up the game over the last like 10 years. So when I was at school for a first eight to like break six minutes yeah. in um, like fast conditions was like amazing for like a J16 eight to get like 610 was amazing. That was incredible. Yeah. That was the standard. And in 2009, that was the first year of like the Stan Leludis yeah. era. Leludis and Nash. Yeah, there was a video taken by one of the parents of my crew from the the big bus that drives alongside Nottingham. And yeah. it looks like any regular Champ 8 final, like, you know, there's three or four crews vying for uh, the lead and there's a couple sort of like hanging onto the coattails. And then the camera pans left. <laughs> there's Eaton crew a good hundred, hundred and fifty meters ahead, and they're just in a in another league. Yeah. Um, and you know we ended up getting a silver medal. In any other year, that would have been a, yep. a champ eight gold. But this crew went from being like, okay, five fifty five is the standard to five forty five is the standard. Yeah. And you know that that was the the level that everyone started trying to to push their programs on towards and then the in my opinion the the st paul's crew in in 2018 were the the next generation of that they pushed it on even more in terms of like the training and the efficiency and the style and the rowing and you know you've got a, a junior a junior boys eight from all from the same school they're not like the best athletes in the country brought together for you know a, a junior world day or something they were their own school eight and they went 536 um, yeah. at Marla Regatta. And like, once again, boof, another standard. And that's what everyone's trying to, um, uh, trying to get up towards. And like, you know, much the same as I was saying about Oxford Brooks in terms of like, that's the, that's the amount of training that's required to, to maintain that standard of racing. Um, with schoolboys, it's a very careful balance because, you know, at the same time, they are trying to get their academics. They're trying to get, sorry, not just schoolboys, but juniors in general. You know, they're yeah. all trying to get through their A-levels um, and go off to university. So the academics are like the top priority. That's why they're at school. They're there to get their academics. And for many, you're like, the, the rowing is a passion um, as much as it is a sport and a sporting option, but it's also how they choose to spend their time and how they want to spend their time. But you can't, push that too far to the point where you're training them like you know full-time athletes because yeah because yeah, at the end of the day you know they are kids um they only have a limited amount of time because they're still sort of balancing this this academic um sporting lifestyle um and obviously if you uh do too much training you take them too far in one direction you start getting injuries and you start getting people dropping out because they can't commit the time or whatever so yeah it's it's a careful balance um and one of the things we, we say at Abingdon, like at the end of the day, if a kid wants to do it, we will give him as much of our time and attention as possible. And okay. we're not going to keep a kid rowing at Abingdon if he doesn't want to, if he wants to go off and do another sport or if he, um, you know, if he ends up being phenomenal as a cross country runner, it's like, okay, great. Go do that. That's fantastic. Cause our philosophy, I guess, if you put it this way, is we want what's best for the kid. And if the kid is really enjoying and thriving in his rowing, that's fantastic. If the kid wants to put more of his time into his rugby or his cricket in the summer, that's also cool. 
Um, uh, I think we're one of um, the only schools that doesn't offer three-term rowing for like the, the lower years. We only pick up rowing in January for the J14s through to the J16s. So uh, for the younger years, it can be seen as like a, a one-term or two-term sport. Yep. And so they tend to do other sports in and around that too. Um, but when it comes up to their their sort of J17, J18 years, uh, we can offer three terms and that's when we see the people who really want to pick rowing as their sport option. Okay. So, so strip, so you almost see that the way of keeping your best athletes in rowing is letting them wonder, it's giving them the freedom to, <clears throat> yeah, to kind of try other things and, if that's where they want to be, that's, that's what's best for them basically. And that's probably what's yeah. best almost for the boat because then you've got people who, the people who are in it, the people who want to be there. Yeah. I think like I, I and the other coaches will always get the most out of a kid if they really are passionate about it and really want to be there. If you've got someone who doesn't really want to be there, but is really good, um, you're never quite going to see they're hundred percent. I don't think okay. so. I'd rather work with the kids who really want to be there and might not necessarily be as good as, as someone else who chooses to do another sport. Uh, I, yeah, I'd rather work with the kids who want to be there because I'm like, okay, you're really going to be committed to what I, what I want to get out of you. And, um, uh, and I'll, I'll give you as much of, you know, my best coaching as I can. So, when it when you have these crews, you get these incredible runs of success. Is this just something that a decent coach with a decent bunch of athletes can put together? Is it down to there, or do you actually have to say, as a as a school rowing club, we are going to be preparing and ready for having those? great athletes turning up so we i mean how, how much do you have to have on standby to have those great runs of success um <laughs> i mean having all of the facilities and equipment and, and, and the best kids at your disposable always does help but you know you can do a lot with you know very humble facilities equipment there's a lot of schools in the past who you know they've just had a really good overarching drive and mentality within the squad of athletes and the coach get so much out of themselves um like you know there are some schools who where rowing is the premier sport um it is you know the reason why some parents send their kids to that particular school because they want them to be involved in rowing you've got some schools where um the school has a good history of rowing, but it's not the top sport. It, it sits amongst the cricket and the athletics and so on and so forth. The, the thing I love about rowing is there's no two ways to skin a cat. Okay. There's so many different ways of like, of doing the training and still getting the same end result. Like you can pick one of five, six different paths of training programs and things. And like, you'll still end up with that crew is, you know, is awesome is 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 still awesome so uh and that's what i love because like you might have schools where it's like we've only got a one kilometer stretch of river but we'll do with it as much as we can 
and we've got to tweak the training in different ways to, to make sure we still get the same end result. You know, you've got crews that row on the tideway and have the ability to go out and do 16, 20K sessions. So they might do less weights and less ergs or things like that. So um, there, a lot of schools have the ability to go very quickly. And, you know, that's, that shows by how, uh, you know, at school's head, you've got top 10 crews might be separated by like six seconds, yeah. something like that. Um, and you know, you get champ eight semifinals where, you know, the difference between coming second and coming seventh in a semifinal is like half a length and stuff like that. There are so many different clubs and schools that, you know, are still able to churn out really, really quick boats. And, you know, well, yes, it might, might be really helpful to have a long stretch of river to, to get a lot of mileage on or a fantastically kitted out, uh, you know, weights gym or 30 ergos or empacker boats or whatever, like, yeah. And you know, like the best kids, but you can still get a lot out of our sport with just people who are very committed and have the right attitude and the right drive. To, to a certain extent, that's absolutely the right answer. That's, that's like, that's kind of like, oh yeah, that's what we want to hear. It's just like, we can actually do it. You, you, you can, if you're just this kind of like slightly provincial school or junior club, you can still beat the Eatons. And the being someone who's been as an adult rower and has only ever been an adult rower, having been beaten by kind of 17-year-old schoolboys on a regular basis, it's, it, it's quite nice to hear that actually it is just a question. Find your niche, do the training, and you know if you, if you have the talent and you have the dedication, you can make the boat go fast. That's, that's a very nice message. It's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. And it's, it's been a, a fantastic interview so far. But I really did want to sort of finish off with, with a couple of things. And the, and the first one is this, is the video. Um, <laughs> that, you know, Terence Chipchase reminded me that, that you'd started the Abingdon versus Belmont Hill. And... It's got 140,000 views on YouTube, which is, which is fairly remarkable for a rowing video. You know, that's, that's up there with like kind of some of the views of the Olympic races. Um, but it's such a dramatic race. Is, is there kind of like, has, has the fact that it was videoed, it's, it's such a dramatic soundtrack to a race, has that led to any sort of like ill feeling from Belmont Hill? I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Is there like a Rory Copus shaped dartboard somewhere in the, in the coach's office at at Belmont Hill? Um, uh, I don't know, but like one of the things I'd love and like, obviously if like, um, uh, you know, some of the the members of, uh, of stewards are listening to this. I mean, it'd be grand to be able to do like an Abingdon versus Belmont, like re-row row past sort of thing. That'd be great. Um, cause we went, Oh God, uh, it was last year it was the 15 year anniversary, <laughs> uh, which is crazy to think, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It was just, it was, everything came together in a really, really good way in the perfect way, I guess. Uh, and I, I think, yeah, I think what makes it a really cool video to watch is obviously, you know, you, you have this sort of narrative of like, they start massively down and they come back through and, and 
you know, I, I, I sound pretty effusive and passionate. Yes, definitely. <laughs> while this definitely. is all happening. Um, um, some fairly remarkable calls in there. And, and you know, it's like, uh, again, Terence pointed it out to me. So watch it again. Watch when he says, I'm coming for you, Belf. I'm coming for you. And you're actually pointing at their stroke man. <laughs> and that was just like, blimey, that's cheeky. I'm, and you could understand that actually genuinely distracting and unsettling like a few members in the crew. It's just like, what's he pointing at us? What, what are we doing? And, it, yeah, and it's I, just I, like, I, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with it. it, it it's, just br- it's just a brilliant little track to watch. I, just like, I was thinking at sort of that point in the race, I was like, what went through my mind was, something needs to happen. I need to do something right now. I need to like make an impact. And I don't know. It just like, you know, most of the best races that I've ever coxed or been part of, like, yes, there's an overarching like plan or race plan, but a lot of it is just off of just you're coxing from instinct. Like very rarely have I done a race where I've been like totally clinical and everything is pre-prepared uh because like yeah nine times out of ten races don't go the way that you're expecting and with belmont hill especially um i knew they were going to go because we talked about it the night before you know they raced at stotesbury um on the schuylkill river in in philadelphia stotesbury cup which is a 1500 meter race and that's um like the 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 east coast schoolboy championships i think so they're used to racing 1500s. They're not used to racing 2K and they're certainly not used to racing 2,112 meters. So we knew that they were going to be going out, you know, like a rocket to begin with. So we just have to, to, to stick with them and weather it and we come through because mm-hmm. we know that from all the training we've been doing, we had a really good retention of speed into the second half of the race. And within the first 20, 30 strokes, it was a very different race than I had sort of uh, like worst case scenario planned for. So I was like, uh, right, we're down. This is not where we plan to be and by this much. So um, I think when we got to the barrier, obviously that's like a minute 40 something in, I call for a sting, which was like a quick, like eight, 10 stroke speed boost basically. Cause this was at back at the point where, you know, you did pushes uh, in schoolboy racing. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, there had been a lot of rain that week and there was still some flow on the river. So obviously the way the river works, you know, you've got, you're out of the stream if you're on the Berkshire side of things, you know, opposite the town side. Yeah. Up until the barrier. Then you're out of the stream because the course obviously shifts into the middle of the river. You're out of the stream on the Buck side. So you've got the advantage from the barrier through to about Remenham. And then it kind of evens out but then the last like 200 meters, the Berkshire station has an advantage because it's really tucked inside the bank. And um, the, so yeah, so I did a sting right after the barrier to try and like just reel back in a little bit of speed and reel back a little bit of that, that, that distance to Belmont, just as the, you know, the advantage shifted to our station and it did, it helped. Uh, Like it sort of stunted them moving away any further. And it was just about keeping my guys trusting that we had a chance and believing that we still could come through and it started happening as we get to like upper thames we started getting contact back again like bowder that's when i thought okay i need to do something here and that happened 
yeah. <laughs> the, the arm pointing. And I was like, oh, I just did that. Whoops. Because <laughs> uh, I've, I've always been, had a lot of pride in being a respectful competitor. Okay. And, you know, you, you sometimes have these coxes that are quite bolshy, like, you know, getting involved with other crews as opposed to just being like, trying to trying to be a gentleman you know a gentleman yeah. of the sport and you do your race three cheers hip hip hooray whatever uh, but you're always giving your opponents the respect they deserve when you start the race when you finish the race blah 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 um and it sort of came off the back of this because i was like i look back and i'm like oh, i was a bit cheeky i probably should have done that but okay <laughs> um and that was just when the the tide started turning we started coming through coming through we came level by uh, the humpback bridge and yep. as we come into our sort of sprint sequence that's when it really happened it was like okay we took a seat we took two seats and that's it and it's gone and yep. that was when they blew up with about 200 meters to go so um it was crazy it was a crazy race and heart rate as a cox is 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 as high as um uh as the athletes because uh, when i was um racing for Leander in the ladies plate in 2019. Um, there was a, uh, a student from Oxford Brooks who was doing her dissertation on heart rates of coxes and yeah. can it be, and like do coxes reach their max heart rate while coxing in the middle of a race? Does it depend on the external factors so on and so forth? And um, so I, I was wearing a, a heart rate for the semi-final against the the Dutch crew, the Dutch under 23s, and my heart rate got up to 198 beats per minute, Blimey. and okay. sat there for about <laughs> from about a third of the way into the race, and then stayed there for the remainder of it. So you know, obviously you're not actively exerting yourself up to that heart rate as a cox, but it's just from the you are riding this wave of adrenaline in massive races, and um, uh, you. Yeah, and you just have this massive, just like, oh, massive bonk as soon as you finish a race because you've just been on this adrenaline high for four or five minutes. And um, uh, that, yeah, the Belmont was just a crazy race, absolutely crazy race. And, you know, my my guys were written off. Um, <laughs> they were completely ruined for, for the rest of that day. And we went home to the house that we were staying um, at for Henley. And we had like this um, inflatable, um, you know, paddling pool. And everyone just went and sat in there and just chilled out for ages. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had not as difficult a race on the Saturday um, uh, against Brunswick School from the States, which was quite good. Because if we'd had another like competitor like Bomb on Hill, then we might not have made it to the final that year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was just, everything came together and everything was timed perfectly to the point where I thought, okay, I may as well put my soundtrack, you know, onto the video and stick it on YouTube. And I, I guess people can like learn from it or something. And it's, yeah, it's blown up into this, this thing that's uh, a slight got phenomenon. quite a few views on YouTube. I think, hang on, I'm just going to check it now myself because I haven't done this for a while. Because there's obviously Belmont Hill, and then there's my recording from 2014. You, you, you've got a Brooks one there that's like yeah. got another 9,000 views on it. Um, um, I, I, I haven't yeah, actually Belmont listened Hill's, to that one. So yeah, so in total, you 
there's 300,000 views between the two of them, which is <laughs> mental. Um, yeah, it, it, it's putting Cameron Buchan into his place as a, as a, as a rowing YouTuber. It's a pretty good going, really. Um, yeah, okay, so it's been brilliant. I just want to finish with the, the question that I ask everybody, um, or I should say we ask everybody, which is, from your point of view, rowing, in the UK, what is it doing right at the moment? What is it doing wrong? And what do you think we should be doing to make things a bit better? Uh, like really, really good question. Cause obviously I've, you know, I've listened to every single one of your, your episodes on this podcast and you know, it's Thank very you. interesting to hear how people answer this question at the end of each episode. Um, I think, accessibility for as many people as possible to do the sport um like i know sometimes rowing gets this sort of um reputation of being uh like a very private school thing and you can only do it if you have money or stuff like that like if you want to go to you know the local rowing club and get out in a boat that's fine like that's that's exactly what it's there for you don't have to pick up rowing at school like yeah there's the ability to go and do the sport in so many different places. Um, and I think that's one of the things that rowing is, is doing better at, um, is like, you, you know, you, if you see that sport on the TV at the Olympics or something, you're like, Oh, I want to go and, and try that and pick it up. You know, there is the ability to go do that, which I think is fantastic. Um, and I think, Parity is doing a really good job at the moment, or rowing is doing a, a, bet, a, a really good job of parity. You know, you look at Henley Raw Regatta, you know, it was a humongous shame that we, we weren't able to race it this year with everything that's going on right now. But, you know, there's the, the new events for, for women's student eights, um, uh, junior women's eights. The, there is almost exactly the same number of female athletes as male athletes competing yep. in the regatta now, which is brilliant. That's exactly as it should be. Um, as of uh, yesterday, September 12th, um, an email came out from the, the National Schools Regatta Committee uh, with rule changes uh, that are going to be enacted for the 2021 regatta. Um, and once again, the, the, the goal of these changes is to provide parity across uh, men's and women's events so the equal number of athletes competing from both um, and also to uh, to increase inclusivity basically so yeah. that I mean I've always loved the the ability of you know racing the eights on the Saturday and then breaking your eight down into a cox and a cox was four for the Sunday racing yeah but you know that does then um, push out you know smaller clubs who might only have a cox for and that's what they're aiming for and then yeah. don't have a chance for a medal so they've um brought in this new rule that uh um stops doubling up okay so you can only enter one championship event you can't enter champ eights and champ cox fours um which means that you know other smaller clubs might have the ability to to get a medal instead which is i think is fantastic um and, you know, you can't enter an A boat into a B boat event because yeah. you think, oh, it's, it's gonna, they're not going to be as competitive in that event. So we're going to race B boats instead and stuff like that. 
so it, it's uh, it's keeping everybody operating at the same level and having the same ability to you know come home with a medal or race you know at a, at a high level at the regatta which i think is yeah. really really good rory thank you very much the last thing i think i'm going to say is please do check out rory's youtube channel rory copus uh, or is it coach copus <laughs> it's coach copus yeah. coach copus <laughs> that's it rory, coach copus on youtube um there are some great videos I, I think you've kind of got like a, a few sort of mean videos up there. So, so there's the, yeah, there's a couple there. Yeah. Winning by inches, which is always great. And yeah, thank you very much. It's been absolutely fantastic. Cool. Right. That was, that was an absolutely great chat. I think Aaron, I'm genuinely honored to have had that chat with Rory. I don't think he sort of necessarily raised the point, but the whole way through, it left me very much with a feeling that he was almost an antidote to a lot of the stuff that we talked about with Tristan. Because uh, Tristan is very much, he was discussing what happens when high-performance programs go too far, when high-performance programs alienate athletes and mistreat athletes. Rory, both at Abingdon and at Oxbrooks, he seemed like he was a graduate of, you know, high-performance programs, you know, uh, rowing clubs that were there to win, but they've done it the right way. And as a result, they've been enormously successful. They've done really well. They've won loads of races. But at the same time, they've engendered huge loyalty in their alumni and have really kind of shown that it, it doesn't have to be this almost terminal sacrifice of all the good things in your life. It can be, being part of a high-performance training program can be a good thing in itself. And I thought that was a really, really interesting and important counterpoint to a lot of the things we've been talking about. That we talked about with Tristan, all very valid points, and we've been talking about recently on Twitter. I would I would agree with that. I think I was very lucky in as much as because because I, I didn't get to sit in on the interview, I actually got to listen to it. So I I first of all when I was editing it, I was I was enjoying it as a as an interview and I think that he makes some fantastic points. I think what's interesting is he's very, very honest about the level that's now required at Oxford Brooks. So he's, he's being very upfront about the program has been so successful that it's probably going to fit an athlete of a certain profile. But in talking about his work with Abingdon, he's also something that Pete said, Pete Brewer, when, when he came on, um, about the importance of fun in rowing. For the, for the holistic growth of, of that individual, that's more important than the boat. So there's a really interesting balance going on there between he's very realistic about the demands of, of high performance programs, but he's also very aware that rowing, if you want to keep people in the sport, has to be fun. I think it's the first time, it's the first time anyone's really broken down what a cox does and how they do it and how they learn it. The demands of being a cox, because every rower tends to think when the cox is picking on them, God, you just sit there, you don't do anything. There are so many things they are constantly juggling and Rory's very, very um, precise about 
all of those elements having to work about how you might learn them as a cox, what might, you know, safety first and then steering and then speech. Um, and he made me think back to the coxes that Loon and I were, were lucky enough to row with, who were, as Rory was to his crews, integral parts of, of, our, of our boat. And Rory was spot on about a good cox can make a good crew great. And coxing, I think, brings us back to how we both kind of found out about Rory, which is Belmont Lewin, which is a which is a masterclass in a lot of things about coxing, from the etiquette of it to how you deliver it when you need it. I, I would say that the Abingdon versus Belmont video, yeah, it's it's that it's a masterclass. It is this demonstration of how you can take a crew that knows where 100% is and is suddenly finding that 100% is not enough in a race. And that guy steering the boat, that guy who has trained with them and knows them and knows everything that can make them push it a bit harder can actually um, give them 101%. That's the zenith of, of what the Cox's role is for. I would also say that you know that there is there are some notable points in this, and and one is the the arm out of the boat towards the Belmont boat. Belmont, I'm coming for you. I'm effing coming for you. And we discussed that. You saw, and you know this is probably like one of the most famous coxing lines in the country because you know it's been seen 145,000 times on YouTube, and people remember that. You know you can talk about that with other rowers. And it's one of the thing is one of the reasons why Rory is kind of a known person. You know, immediately the thing he says about it is like it wasn't planned. And I, you know, I actually really felt that I went a bit too far. And in that minute, you realise that this is not just a guy who's all about the competition. He's a guy who is highly competitive, highly driven. But he loves his sport. He loves the concept of fair play. And the fact that he's willing to almost kind of row back on, no pun intended, this kind of incredibly famous moment in his career is a real testament to the individual. I, I, think, that's a, I think that's a sign of the man. And I think, it's, I think it's a beautiful encapsulation of the things that we've just talked about. You, you were basically saying about the, the Belmont-Abingdon race it's almost like a process of alchemy where you have these athletes and we're all rowers here and everyone listening to it as a rower all of our scores are logged all of our tests are logged every every outing that we do is logged every weight that we lift it is logged we know what the limits of our performance are but on that day in that moment when they they had this crew that they knew were going to be fast they were a 1500 meter crew they were going to get out on that moment there was an alchemy that happened where the performance of Rory in that boat elevated the performance of the eight in the boat. And, and in the same way that he brought the best out of his athletes and he, he elevated them, his sense of responsibility towards the athletes in his charge, which um, inspired him to produce that moment that kept them in the race that they then went on to win. There's, it was just that beautiful thing of he lifted them and they lifted him and you have this iconic performance. And frankly, you know, if you're ever going to go and lift weights, go for a run, take the dog for a walk, sit on an erg, take the bike out, 
go for a swim, listen to this before you do it, because you'll have a great session afterwards. Iconic piece. You will. I think that's about it. I think that I think we've been very uh, yet again we've been very lucky in our guests. It was a it was a fantastic piece to listen to. We have. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that stroke side should be holding and bow side should be getting out. Okay, well that's just typical of you, stroke siders, isn't it? Absolutely. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for listening. Good night. <laughs>